Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Zamir Kassam here with me in New York. Welcome to my podcast, Zamir. Thank you so much for having me, Vesna. Thanks. As an intro, Zamir Kassam is a jewelry designer and founder of his fine jewelry brand carrying his name. He is a former McKinsey analyst with a family background in jewelry. He made the leap from the business world into the jewelry design, armed with a Harvard MBA and a passion for jewelry design. His business model is the complete opposite of everything in the industry, and it hinges very much on millennials. So Zamir has created over 1,000 pieces of fine jewelry for private clients around the world. I've been reading up a little bit on, on this diamond industry, and I've understood that it's in a great need to revamp its image and also reheat its industry. And you seem to have steadily carved out a reputation for yourself in a sector that is really becoming less dominated by major jewelry producers. So how do you go about it? Well, thank you, Vesna, again for having me. I think that the last 10 to 15 years has been transformative for the industry and not in a good way. If we look at the history of the jewelry industry, it was always about pieces of jewelry that celebrated major milestones, people's engagements, moments of love. But the last 10, 15 years, there's been a seismic shift in the way that millennials especially think about jewelry. It's become much more generic and much more transactional, the industry at large. And I think as a result, most millennials are less excited about diamonds and about jewelry than any generation in the past. And we see this shaping luxury brands that are moving towards leather goods from jewelry. We see this online where even the low cost players aren't getting anywhere. And so in that context, what we've done is we've created a business model that is all about telling stories and stories that are personal, typically stories of the way one person feels about someone else. Um, if you see some of our designs, you might have an engagement ring where the prongs are gently inspired by the top of a church where her family may have grown up in Finland. Or there might be gemstones hidden on the inside of the band that tell the story of the moment in Puerto Cervo where they were on a trip and all of a sudden he looked over and saw that he was madly in love with her. And he wanted to celebrate that moment in a way that would share with her that feeling of his love that he had from that moment on the trip. And so we might find ways to gently weave in these very personal details into the design of a ring. In doing so, we're creating pieces that are similar to jewelry back when jewelry mattered. You know, this isn't just a transactional diamond engagement ring. This is something that is much more personal and meaningful to that person. And so we built a business model that is the opposite of what some of these other traditional jewelers um, have to deliver this experience. So three things I think are very different. Number one, we don't have any jewelry stores. You know, the idea that someone would walk into a jewelry store and buy something off the shelf is as transactional and meaningless as the most mundane forms of retail. And so instead, we have a team of storytellers that we deploy to meet clients all over the world. And they'll sit down and they'll learn this person's story one-on-one, -on -one, literally with a piece of paper and a pencil, taking handwritten notes, which they then feed to me, and we, myself, and my team of designers will sketch, again, with pencil and paper, these designs that tell these stories. And then we'll deliver this ring to this client, again, typically in their home country, in some beautiful space where we share with them not just the ring, or the piece of jewelry that celebrates the anniversary or whatnot, but also the content. You know, these beautiful notes 
and sketches that share the story of what he has done for her or what she has done for him. And in that way, the retail store is no longer the focal point for this experience. It's much more integrated into their lives. The second thing we don't do is we don't carry inventory. The idea of having a diamond in a showcase that we would pretend is the right diamond for this one particular client for this project, it again feels very transactional. Instead, we leverage my network of diamond companies and gemstone companies from my experience working at De Beers and bring to that client the most extraordinary diamonds, whether they're $5,000 or $500,000, that really fit with this particular need. That also, as you can imagine, reduces our inventory carrying costs, which means we can over-invest in the experience. We can afford to have people visiting these clients. We can afford to create incredibly bespoke pieces that are higher quality than most of the pieces that these folks have turned away from in these luxury brands. And the third thing we don't do is we don't do any traditional marketing. If we had billboards and you know, radio and television ads, I think it would start to take away from the personal nature of what we do. Instead, we rely on clients, you know, literally referring us one to another, sharing the story of what they did with us and how it impacted their lives in that moment that they were about to propose. And in doing so, we start working with new clients in a trust-based way. We're not relying on these kind of generic advertising campaigns. It's much more person to person. And so we are building something that is truly putting the consumer in the center of our business and trying to go back to a time and place where jewelry mattered. And I think that's resonating, especially with millennials who are valuing personalization and looking for meaningfulness, this time when things are becoming less meaningful. And also when you talk to your clients, do you explain more about the whole kind of jewelry industry as well to kind of raise their general awareness? Yes, we do. So our process starts with a tutorial. And in the tutorial, we'll sit down with a client and give a one-hour debrief of the way that we think about diamonds or whatever gemstone is likely to be in the center of this piece of jewelry. We'll also focus on the trade-offs where beauty and value are optimized. And so it's our first way of establishing a relationship with a client. I also feel that so much of this industry has been misserved by like disinformation that's been broadcast both by the industry incumbents, the luxury brands who have made people feel like they need a certain degree of brand on a box or a certain degree of you know, low risk design, but also new players. If you look online and you read some of these so-called unbiased sources of information and you click through these podcasts or you click through these articles, you are most likely to get to a source that is selling exactly what that unbiased <laughs> source of information is trying to provide. And it makes me feel like every bit of information out there is designed to make a client feel anxious and scared about this really incredible moment in his or her life. Like how sad is it that if we're celebrating a 20th anniversary or our daughter's you know, graduating from college or I'm proposing to the woman that I love, that in this one incredibly exciting moment, the industry seems to want to pressure me and push me towards things that I may not be best served by. And so the very first step is teaching the client without any commitment what we think is important, what we think is not important in the diamond industry. Oftentimes also sharing margins of different industry players so they get a sense of what their options are. And then hopefully, even if they don't work with us, they're empowered to make a smart decision. And is there a 
repeat business here in your business cycle, so to say? <laughs> well, it's our dream, right? So it's an honor to design pieces of jewelry that celebrate these moments in time. Two thirds of our business is engagement rings and wedding bands, one third is other milestones. And so when we meet a client, he is typically 25 to 40 years old. He's typically designing this ring with us. And we create it and we tell the story of his relationship up until that point. And he proposes and we all celebrate. And we're so excited to often be invited to the wedding. So often design the wedding bands and sometimes the wedding day jewelry. But the really exciting thing is two or three years later when I get the phone call that they're expecting their first child. Or something exciting has happened in their professional life. And we are honored to tell the story of that moment in time in a different way. Usually a smaller piece, but something that is equally meaningful. And so the dream is that we will tell the story of different milestones in people's lives and really become part of their major moments over the long term. And then, Vesna, if I think about myself as a designer and an entrepreneur, I think my greatest fantasy is that I look back as an old man at all of these designs that I've created. And through these stories that I've told, I can tell my story of my life as the son of refugees from East Africa, working in consulting and banking, getting an MBA, and then becoming this person that's trying to bring meaningfulness and stories back to the jewelry industry. And how does people's concern over the social impact on, of diamonds and this rising popularity of lab-grown gems affect the industry, do you think? Well, Vesna, I think people should be incredibly passionately concerned about the sourcing of diamonds and other gemstones. You know, I, I think that I've mentioned to you that my family comes from East Africa, Tanzania, and most of the world's diamonds and gemstones come from Africa, certainly diamonds. And so over the years, over the decades, it's always been a source of discomfort, not knowing what's actually happening on the ground where these diamonds are being mined, given that my family's from very close to there. It was during my MBA at Harvard Business School that I decided to get back into the industry. And one of the first things I did is I spent the second semester, second year, working in the field, actually going to Juaneng, which is where the world's most productive diamond mine is, and experiencing there firsthand with the miners, with the government bodies, what is actually happening on the ground where diamonds are being mined. I will tell you that the history of the diamond industry has been marred with incredible controversy, like many other industries. But I do think that there are some examples where we're doing things right. And Botswana is an example that I'm very proud of um, and very proudly offer diamonds from through the Forevermark brand of diamonds. Uh, this is an area where more than 90% of the world's diamonds are mined and more than 90% of the value of those diamonds are accruing to the people of that country. And so it is a shiny example of what I hope will be the standard, both in the jewelry industry, but also in other industries of a public-private partnership, mining companies working with governments, working with people, and various different organizations monitoring and tracking the performance of these industries, including myself on behalf of Harvard. Now, the, the fun thing for me is that in the last five to 10 years, it's no longer a selling feature to say that we are responsibly mined diamonds. My clients, these millennials who are highly educated professionals, they expect this of their brands. If this is not already a part of the brand, I would argue they will revolt. And so I think it's transforming the industry. And I hope that more and more customers are much more engaged on what's happening from the, the place of origin of their products. 
Wonderful, because that's the best influence um, and source of, of transformation is the client, the customers. Absolutely. So back to you, what is your, what you would call passion? Well, Vesna, I think my greatest passion is telling stories. And so growing up in Canada, we didn't have many symbols or mementos of our history. There were no pieces of jewelry. There were no photographs. My, my father doesn't even have his original birth certificate. So we don't even know when he was born. But the interesting thing is that my parents started a jewelry store when I was four years old. And I grew up going to this jewelry store after school every day. And I remember these people coming in frequently, you know, typically Italians, because we were in the Italian neighborhood in Vancouver. And they would always mark these beautiful, incredibly important moments in their lives with pieces of jewelry. And I, I especially remember Mrs. Calabria, who owned Calabria's Bakery down the street. And she would come in every week, I kid you not, and buy a baptism medallion for one girl in the family, a communion medallion for a boy in the family, and countless pieces for herself for every major moment in her life. And I remember thinking, Mrs. Calabria, you have to have hundreds of pieces of jewelry. And she would look at me and say, well, how else am I going to remember these moments? You know, and, and, and that was so powerful because this is a culture and a heritage, especially many of these European countries, which celebrate these moments over generations through pieces of jewelry because they know that letters will not last and photographs will not last and even digital records may be deleted. But these are things that will last forever. And so when I went through my sort of experience of going into the corporate world at McKinsey and having an amazing experience there and at MTV Networks and learning about storytelling in various different ways and then exploring different industries to enter at business school, I was drawn back to the jewelry industry because I felt that this is an industry where we are truly creating things, physical manifestations of love and celebration that will last. What I realized when I was working for LVMH in a joint venture between LVMH and De Beers Group is that the luxury industry, while truly creating things that last, is becoming less and less personal. And so I left that to start this business where we create pieces of jewelry that individually tell stories of people's life and their love and their gratitude and their appreciation. And as I mentioned, each of these pieces tell stories in secret ways, very different from each other. But each of them is the authentic representation of how someone feels in this one, one moment in time, in this wild and crazy world about someone else. And so my greatest passion is not jewelry design. It is not even diamonds. It is creating pieces that tell stories so that someday for people like me, who might be the son or daughter of immigrants and refugees or whatnot, there is some record of who we are, where we come from, and more importantly, our emotions for each other. Mm. Yeah, and that's why it's beautiful that you also combine uh, the jewelry with the sketches, the story behind, right? So that they, you give them that as a, I guess, uh, in a physical shape or a digital shape, I don't know, both. Yes, often both, but if I'm, if I'm to say something controversial, I would argue that those photos of the sketches and the notes, the quotes that one person has said to me about someone else are almost as important, if not more important, than the actual piece of jewelry. I think the jewelry is a vehicle. You know, it may be a beautiful ring and she may love it and he may love giving it. But at the end of the day, if she doesn't look at it on her worst, most stressful moments as the head of her law firm or, you know, with whatever else is happening in her life, and remember that there is someone who loves her madly, deeply, and will always, then I've lost. You know, what's the point of this? 
And I think that those sketches and those notes bring that to life so that it kind of fuels this ring with meaning. And what would you say in your life so far have been these um, transformational points that have you influenced you the most? Well, well, other than growing up in a family jewelry environment where I was exposed to people coming in and celebrating these moments with jewelry and understanding the power that jewelry can have, it was certainly when I was at Harvard Business School. During my first year and first semester, there was a professor by the name of Robert Kaplan. He had just left Goldman Sachs as the vice chairman, and he was our first-year leadership professor. And he went around the class and asked everyone in the room, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? And of course, we were all business students, so people were saying that they'd start their own hedge fund, they might go into an industry where they were particularly passionate. And when it came to me, I said, oh, I'd go back to McKinsey. And he said, well, come on, you know, if you had all the money in the world, would you continue to be a consultant? And I said, yeah, I had a great experience, and I think that it was, it'll be a launch pad for something else. And at that moment, my neighbor, Tim Heiss, picked up my case and said, Zamir would be a, a designer. And he said, a jewelry designer. And everyone was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Looking around the class, thinking, how would this McKinsey guy become a jewelry designer? And it turns out that I used to sketch pieces of jewelry in the, in the margin of all of my business school cases every day, and I didn't really realize that he'd noticed. And so he said that, and, and Rob Kaplan looked at me and said, Zamir, come see me after class. Turns out that Rob Kaplan, this you know incredibly powerful finance person from Goldman, is the son of a door-to-door jewelry salesman in Kansas City. And so if there was a learning there, it's that I'm happy that this came out, that I was forced to vocalize that I had a passion for jewelry design. I would never have known that this professor had this background. From there, he basically took me under his wing and helped me get a job working as an intern at De Beers LVMH. And that really changed the course of my life. Even five years later, when I left that job and came back to New York to start this business, it was his door that I knocked on first. By then, he was the chairman of the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. But he still helped me in formulating how this could not just be a passionate, creative outlet, but actually a real business that would have customers and would create economic value so that it would be sustainable. And I think he hammered home this idea that if it's not a profitable, sustainable business, you will never transform the industry. You'll just be that fun project people look to as as an example. And I'm very grateful that he did light a fire under me to keep this growing as a business because I do plan to change the industry in any way I can. You know, I'm excited to speak on podcasts like this at Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, even at Parsons School of Design and help people bring humanity back to industries. And so I think that was the greatest transformational moment. I'm so happy when I hear these, you know, personal stories about people seeing something that maybe you don't see, which you, because you're in the midst of something else, and they kind of help you uh, to pull out this golden string and, and help you uh, on the right path. That's wonderful. In terms of businesses, companies in general, what kind of long-term solutions then do you believe in? Well, look, Fesna, I believe strongly in human connection. I think that at the end of the day, what really brings us back to a brand or a business is feeling like someone there cares deeply about you and is trying to make your life better. And so what I hope businesses will try to bring back is this feeling of human connection, is this idea that it's not a monolithic organization, but it's actually built of people who ideally, and this is the most challenging part of it, but ideally are very passionate about what they do. I feel like when people are passionate, even if you're a middle manager in, you know, in a bank 
or in a retail firm or wherever you are, if you're really passionate, you'll find ways to unlock new and creative ideas that will genuinely impact the consumer. And so one of the things that we do in our organization um, that's been incredibly effective is we have an in-house therapist. Some of your, your listeners may know that Kieran Aurora was the former president of the American Family Therapy Academy. And we brought her in to speak with and work with all of our employees, top to bottom. And what we found is that some of the people who have a background in PR, who should be incredible with clients, actually really want to work in operations. And some of the folks who have been in operations their whole lives and know the ins and outs of how to make a piece of jewelry are really passionate about clients. But they didn't know that themselves because they hadn't had the time to unlock these ideals inside their minds. And so by creating these programs for our staff, we found that we can move them into other parts of the organization where they're really much more passionate. And through that passion, they're engaged more with our clients. And so in some ways, this is a highly difficult business to scale. And yet here we are scaling. And I think it's because we've invested more in our people so that we can build a greater human connection with our end client. Interesting. But if you could give um, one piece of advice to leaders, however you define those, what, what would it be? I think number one is to live your passion. You know, as a leader, oftentimes we get boxed into certain areas of the organization or certain numbers of hours that you spend in a day doing things that aren't truly aligned with your passion. And as a jewelry designer, I can say that my greatest passion is telling stories, working with clients and sketching. Yet as an entrepreneur, many of those hours could easily be spent working with legal, HR, and other sort of managing the business functions. Um, I think the greatest thing someone told me is to be your best and most valuable self. And those are often very aligned, but it's hard to do. And one of the exercises is to look at the hours in the day that you spend doing things that you love, that you like, and that you don't love and that you don't like. And then try to find ways to move those off and make that a regular exercise once every six months, once every year, and really focus on those things that feed your soul. And so I think part of what I've, what I've realized this year, I spend 80% of my time sketching and learning stories, and it makes every day that much more exciting and beautiful, and I think my team appreciates that. I think the second piece of advice that I've been sort of fortunate to learn is that at the end of the day, you have human beings who are impacted by the work that we do. Every decision, every minute is about them, whether it's the people that work for you or the people that, that we're essentially serving. And I think in the, in the rut of running an organization, it's so easy to forget that. But some simple exercises, like literally putting up photographs of some of the clients who've been the most exciting folks to work with and some who've been more challenging, you know, some of the most incredible projects and some that really taught us about what to do or what not to do, those visual cues on a day-to-day -day basis have kept all of us grounded and reminded that there are people who we serve. And if we're not working every minute to make their most beautiful moments more emotional and exciting, or trying to push the envelope of design to create something that's really beautiful and lasting, then there's no point. And if you were to give advice to yourself 15 years ago, or 10, whatever is relevant for you, what would it be? I would hope that when I look back at my life, I've done things that have meaning, I've had the courage 
to stand up to industry, you know, megaliths and partners and the kind of status quo to fight for what I think is right, both on the responsible sourcing side of diamonds and on the side of really telling beautiful love stories and making this about people and not about jewelry. If I were to go back and say to myself, you know, 10 years in the past or 15 years in the past, it would probably be to just continue to stand firm and to not lose faith that even though I am, you know, the David and the Goliath story or we are an organization that is doing things the opposite as the rest of the industry, that the world is far more long-term minded than I had thought it would be. You know, there's this crazy perception that in this startup world, you have to have a business model that will create hundreds of millions of dollars and massive exits and all that. And here I am on the other side, bootstrapping the business, working with individual clients with absolutely no desire to ever exit. You know, I will do this until the day I die. And I think that in some moments of my life, that was a source of sadness, frustration, insecurity, um, because I felt like no one will take this seriously. And what I've learned is that this world that we live in will actually value lasting passion, will actually value people who are thoughtful for the long term. And some of the greatest, largest industry organizations like De Beers Group, which is in a partnership with us, um, and various other organizations that I've been honored to work with, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Harvard Business School, these are firms that are also long-term minded. And so I think I'd tell myself to just, you know, stand tall, continue to be focused, have the courage, and hopefully I wouldn't uh, move myself away from any of the mistakes I've made. Because I do believe that the mistakes I've made have led me to where I am today. And I hope to still make mistakes because that's when I felt like I've grown the most. But I do think that there's something about finding partners who are also invested in the long term. Just one little example of one mistake, what would that be? There was a woman by the name of Marla Malcolm Beck who started a company called Blue Mercury. Um, she is an incredible, incredible advisor, mentor, and I had this opportunity with a major luxury department store. And as a guy from Vancouver, British Columbia, who grew up dreaming of shopping at some of these stores, when they were connected to me and they wanted to do a deal with us to bring this bespoke experience to their top clients in two or three of their markets, I was intoxicated. I literally felt like I had you know, just won the lottery. And I rem remember calling her and sharing with her some of the terms of the deal. And she said to me, you know, I hope you realize that this is a terrible deal for you. It will put all of your money and your time at risk and they commit nothing. But I can understand why you'd want to do it because you feel like this is a launch pad and everyone in retail loves launch pads. And she, this is a phone call. She said, but Zamir, you're a jeweler, so you might appreciate this. Don't get distracted by the first shiny, sparkly thing. Stick with this for the longer term. You know, think about where this will take you as a brand. You will physically then be spending 80% of your time working with them. What about your clients? What about their stories? What about the vision that you had of being autonomous and you know, creating this business that didn't have an exit, didn't have responsibilities to shareholders outside of your consumers and your employees? And the mistake I made was not listening to her soon enough because I did get very excited about this shiny thing. And we ended up negotiating this deal getting farther and farther, but 
this was an organization that didn't move at the pace that we moved, and as we learned later on, didn't value what we valued. And so three years into the deal, with a deal signed, which is still sitting, collecting dust right now, the organization actually laid off 500 people, including the entire team that would have launched this. And I remember thinking about it and reflecting and saying, I'm, I'm happy I, I learned this much. You know, at that time, I had been imagining deals with all sorts of organizations like this in other countries, including some incredible institutions in the United Kingdom and in Italy. And I thought this would have changed the trajectory of this business in my life. And I'm not sure it would have made me happier. Maybe more profitable, maybe more revenue, but not happier. And at the end of the day, if I was working with an organization that would lay off 500 people without them having a clue about it, that's not the kind of organization that I want to work with. And so it was a wonderful lesson learned, both in terms of heeding advice, but also having an incredible advisor like her who would set me on the right path and in the very first moment of hearing about it. And what do you think um, is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now, all kinds of companies, if there is one kind of common denominator? Well, I think that to me, the most important thing that companies should think about is investing in the human connection, you know, humanizing their organizations, their brands. I know that in my organization, which is a very high touch, very unique, almost service oriented, bespoke luxury brand, it's easier for me to say to invest in the human connection because we all speak to our clients one on one directly. But I do believe that there is a way to bring a human element back to almost any organization. Um, whether it's at the high level, if you're in the strategy group and really spending a couple of days over the course of some quarter and just radically rethinking the business model with the customer in the center. But there's this, these theories by Phil Terry um, in this book that he's created around a framework to rethink your business with the human being at the center. And I would suggest that people do that exercise at least once every quarter or once every six months to imagine a very different world and then try to poke holes in it. I think that this is something that Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway also spoke about at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Review a few weeks ago. On the flip side, if you're an operator, then I think spending time to humanize some of the touch points between the consumer and the brand. You know, one of my most recent examples is Iceland Air. I actually frequently travel to Iceland. I feel that it's a place that I love sketching. I mean, I have some very close friends. And Iceland Air allows you to change your flights on a messenger chat app. Now, I'm not sure if this is a human being or a chat bot, but I can tell you that it feels so wonderful to text someone and say, I'm not going to make this flight. Can I get on the next flight? And here's my locator code. And within 30 seconds, I have everything arranged by this person or computer program on the other side. I know that sounds crazy because it may not be a person, but there is an element of humanity there. There's an element of feeling like someone cares. The other example that I have is the, the Goldman Sachs Marcus Bank. I can't imagine that in 2018, I have an account with a bank that has no branches, that does very few activities, but yet I feel that the person on the other end of that phone when I called and she picked up within 30 seconds, made me feel like they cared more than my other banking at three or four other institutions. 
I would suggest that people bring back that feeling of human connection in whatever way they can. Great advice, thank you. And the last question, um, what do you think actually the world needs most at this time? I would argue that the world in the broadest sense is filled with individuals and that individuals need to be reminded that we are all more similar than we are different. It's something that I find is one of the greatest pride points of my life. I don't just serve people on one side of the political spectrum. I am often in front of people who I may disagree with, whether it's someone in Africa, Asia, America, wherever we are, these are people from all walks of life, from every different level of income, from every different level of education. And I sit down with them and I learn their stories. I learn how they fell in love. I learn how they might have suffered great loss. I learn how they helped their loved ones through some of the toughest times and some of the greatest times. And every single hour of every single day, I am always so struck with how similar we all are, how much more we have in common. And in this day and age where there's so much emphasis being placed on dividing people and showing how different we are, it's so unfortunate that people like me can't share more of the stories that we hear. You know, I, I certainly try to. This podcast is an example. Um, the stories that we tell on the website and Instagram and some of the media that we've been so honored to be part of. But I hope that everyone who has a business like ours, who works with human beings from all across the spectrum can spend a little bit more time and energy just sharing the stories. Sharing stories that remind us that we are all good. People still want to be good. People will still be good. You know, we have much more love and happiness to share than some of these kind of media outlets would want us to believe. So true. We're all one, right? How was it to be on the podcast? I think it's been a great experience. It's interesting how much more vulnerable <laughs> this podcast is when you ask such soul-searching questions. I also feel that I have much more advice to gain <laughs> from your other podcast than to give, so I think it's an honor to be here. I applaud your efforts in trying to shine a light on the greater good that people in the business community uh, really have in our hearts. You know, it's sometimes harder for people who are in the business community to speak about the things that really matter to them because they're so busy speaking about business topics. And so I think I'm grateful that there are people like you doing this. I think it's a wonderful mission. Thank you so much, Samir. And thanks for sharing. To find out more about Zamir and his work, you can head to uh, zamirkassam.com. So it's spelled Z-A-M-E-E-R-K-A-S-S-A-M.com. And also, of course, follow him and the company on social media. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast. And I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. And should you want to buy a beautiful tailor-made ring, you know where to go. <laughs> it would be an honor. Thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. A big ciao from New York. Mm -hmm.